Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 11, and it can be found on page 737. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. We know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires, and of your torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand you will lie down in torment. This is the word of the Lord. Peace to God. Thanks, Sheila. Uh, you might want to keep that open in front of you. I'm going to have a little look at it together. Though I wonder as you were listening to it, well, there was a little bit of dissonance. We're here to celebrate a happy day, a baptism, celebrate uh, life and family and love and the gift of God. And what have you done, Richard? You've given us a reading about torture, Beating, torment. Sorry, Rob. Actually, there's some very good news in the midst of this passage. And it's better good news because it's good news in the midst of realism. Just like a really good doctor, this is a writer who speaks about the genuine symptoms and gives a good diagnosis before giving his medicine. Just like a really impressive and thoughtful recruitment consultant, this is someone who knows exactly the job that needs to be done before putting out the advert. And actually, those two metaphors, although they're not Isaiah's metaphors, might help us a little bit this morning. The first metaphor is that of a doctor. The prophet or prophets, Isaiah, living hundreds of years before Jesus, actually have an awful lot of doctoring to do with God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel. They are time and again having to both point out the symptoms. It's an odd one, that, isn't it? You'd think that it's the patient naming the symptoms. In this case, it's actually the doctor saying, have you noticed, by the way, you've got this problem? Or have you noticed that? But then as they point out the symptoms with God's ancient people, Israel, he then is offering a diagnosis. In other words, have you seen this is happening and this is why? This is your problem. This is what's happening. The symptoms were, should have been very clear to them. The symptoms of God's Old Testament people were that they were in exile. 
They were as far away from their home as they could ever have imagined, and actually further, living in a place that was so alien to the way that their parents and grandparents had been brought up that it was impossible to imagine. And they were, uh, therefore, being sort of disappeared into another nation, in danger of losing their moorings, losing their identity, losing their ability to worship the God who had rescued them out of Egypt when they were slaves, and really disappearing as a nation at all. And Isaiah comes along and says to them, recognize what's happening, and this is why. Just like a good doctor, here are your symptoms, here's the diagnosis. And the diagnosis that Isaiah gives them time and again through these chapters is simply this, that you have turned your backs on the one who made you, on the one who loves you, on God himself. He's given you so much. He's rescued you from slavery. He's led you through the wilderness. He's taken you to the promised land. He's given you the kings that have led you. He's given you prosperity. And you've said, not interested. We're going to do our own thing. Symptoms, diagnosis. And then Isaiah becomes a bit more of a recruitment consultant. Because rather than offering a prescription, it's more that he offers a person. Rather than saying, here is what you need, he says, this is who you need. In other words, if you're going to be rescued, if you're going to deal with these symptoms, if you're ever going to come back fully from exile, if you're ever going to be God's people again, actually, if you're ever to know what it is to be the people God made you to be, then you need help. And through some of these chapters of Isaiah, particularly the ones that we're looking at on these five, five Sundays leading up to Easter itself, we're looking at some of what the, um, Isaiah writes almost as a job description for God's servant, which is why we've called these the servant songs. And over the last couple of weeks, me two weeks ago, Steve last week, and over the next couple of weeks and today, we're looking at these five songs that have within them this job description. But there's a problem. I don't know whether you've ever gone looking for a job and read a job description and gone, yeah, well, good luck with that. Or maybe you've written a job description and realized that you've basically just written the job description for the Archangel Gabriel. In other words, you know, you can basically say, we need all of these wonderful things, preferably all in one person and preferably costing this much. Yeah, that's not going to happen, is it? You have to sort of compromise. But the problem was even worse for those who were hearing Isaiah's words. He was describing to them a role which they had actually already tried to implement themselves. He was saying, here's the one that you need, and they're looking in the mirror and thinking, yeah, we tried that. And we failed again and again and again. It's pretty dispiriting. Except for the fact that what then comes through is that this HR consultant, this recruitment uh, person, is actually saying, do you know what? You're okay. I know exactly who can do this. There will come one who will be God's great servant, his great rescuer, the one who will perfectly fulfill all that you have failed to do. He points forward, we now know, to Jesus. And time and again in the Gospels, those four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, time and again, the writers, as they're describing the life of Jesus, go, it's him. All those hundreds of years before, when Isaiah wrote about God's servant who was going to come, who was going to rescue his people, but more than that, as we were thinking last week with Steve, who was going to bring God's light to the whole world, that job which you failed to do, Jesus has come and is doing it in himself. 
And then what we find in the rest of the pages of the New Testament, it's as if Jesus comes along to us and scoops us up and says, you know that job you couldn't do by yourself, which I've done perfectly in my life, in my death, in my resurrection, to rescue you, to give you new life. Well, you get to come and be part of that too. You get to come and live out that life, live out that job, that task, which you couldn't do by yourself, but which you can do with me. And that's the context for these few verses in Isaiah 50, the third servant song. Because what we find here is a little bit more of the job description. And both halves of what he's going to describe of what was needed to rescue the world, to be the place and to be the people that God made them to be, to be the life that we long for. Both halves of this job description are entirely undoable. Far too difficult for us to achieve by ourselves. The first task, on the face of it, sounds simple, but as we delve, we realize that actually we really struggle. It's there right in verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. It reminds us of something from a couple of weeks ago, from Isaiah 42, where he spoke of the, uh, the, the servant being the one who won't snuff out a flickering candle flame, who won't bend over further or trample on a bruised reed. In other words, here is going to be a servant who is full of kind gentleness. Full of kind gentleness. Now, on the one hand, those words remind us of something most of us would rather forget, or at least most of us would rather avoid. This sense that we live in a world that needs comforting. Now, that wasn't a surprise to Isaiah's first hearers. They were in exile. They'd suffered terribly. But they, like we, had to work out why it happened. Why were they experiencing this? And what were they to do with it? And the, the, the answer of Isaiah, the answer of the whole of the scriptures, end to end, is very simple. It says the brokenness in our world comes from, stems from, is the direct symptom of a disease of the heart. And the disease of the heart is very simply us turning our backs on God, the one who made us, the one who knows us, the one who loves us, and saying, I'm going to do things my own way. Not, I hasten to add, that the Bible says that if I suffer in a particular way, it's a direct, linked consequence to a particular thing I've done. Quite the opposite. It's more that in general terms, our world is broken, is dislocated by a disease at its very heart, like a whole body that suffers because of one part that is diseased. And into that experience that we all have, I mean, I hardly need to sort of name them, but you wouldn't have to look very far on the, even the front page of a news website or the front page of a newspaper or listen to the headlines in the news or simply just to look at the communities in which we live and to go, we do live in a broken and a bruised world. We experience that brokenness and that bruisedness in our own lives, in our own families, in our own communities, let alone in the wider world of state against state, of, uh, uh, of distrust and of anger. And it seems to me that this description of a servant who will sustain the weary speaks right to the heart of something that we might otherwise avoid. See, when I look at a broken world, I'm tempted to do one of two things, or maybe both of them. On the one part, I'm sometimes tempted simply to despair. 
simply to give up. I would hazard a guess that most of us at some point in our lives have gone, what a horrible place. I wish it wasn't like that. I don't know what to do about it. Can't do a thing. Just to allow our hearts to be sort of trampled. And I distinctly remember, I mean, I now have an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old, but it seems like only yesterday that we brought our eldest back from hospital. And I remember uh, him in his, uh, his car seat as we walked out of the hospital thinking, surely we have to sign something? Do we not have to pass a test? They've let me out of the hospital with our baby. I don't know what we're doing. Okay. So we went home, we put him in his car seat in the middle of the front room, and I, I can visualize it like it was yesterday. We sat on a sofa and we looked at him. We thought, now what? I don't know. We've sort of been building up to this day for I don't know how long, and now what? And yet I also remember in those moments of great joy, actually, and also great chaos and confusion, if I'm honest, I also remember some moments of what I can only describe as despair. Not despair because he wouldn't sleep, though let me tell you that was part of the deal. Uh, Not despair because I didn't want to change another nappy or because he was crying, but actually despair simply because as a parent, because you love your child, there are moments where you just think, what have I done bringing them into this mess? What have I done? Why would I do that to a child? I felt that, certainly. I still feel it now as a parent. And yet, what Isaiah wants to do is not to give us despair, but to give us hope. Because he says the servant's job is to speak a word of sustaining to the weary, to bring hope to those who are weighed down. Perhaps the other temptation we have is not to despair so much as to try and insulate ourselves from the weariness of this world, to do everything we possibly can to make sure that we and our families are not touched by the pain of our world. So we will build up our bank accounts as much as possible. We will live in the nicest possible houses. We will try and insulate ourselves from communities and a world that is broken in the hope that it won't touch us and in the hope that it won't touch those we love. This is a bit of a challenge to that. Here is a job description of one who will go into a broken world, who will step next to those who are weary, who will be alongside those who are broken, and will bring a word of sustaining, who will bring the love that brings hope. And what we see here is both that there is nothing to fear in that brokenness, because it is, we now know, a result of our turning our backs on God, but also that God's servant comes to bring strength and to sustain. Comes to bring strength and to sustain. It's what we see in the person of Jesus. Everywhere you look in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everywhere you see, Jesus is speaking to those who are broken. Jesus is alongside those who are weary, lifting up those who are weighed down. Jesus is the one who fulfills fully and completely that job description of needing to sustain others. I'm going to pause. Are we all all right? Okay. Yeah, is John out there? Oh, that's right. Great. Fantastic. Okay. Jesus is the one who fulfills this job description that you and I will struggle to do. 
Jesus is the one who comes. And everywhere you look in the Gospels, and if you've never read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, what you'll find is that they're really quick to read, but they are absolutely captivating. Because you see in this person, Jesus, someone who is incredibly in control of himself and what he's able to give, who speaks to huge crowds, who does astonishing miracles, and yet, as Isaiah 42 predicts, wouldn't snuff out, to use that language, a flickering flame, who wouldn't trample on a bruised reed, or to use the words of Isaiah 50, will sustain the weary. And then what we find is that he gives us that task too, with his strength, with his encouragement. Now that's our prayer for Josephine. Our prayer for Josephine is that she will find in Jesus the one who will come alongside her when life is difficult. The one who will bring to her a word of encouragement, of sustaining, of hope. But what we're also praying is that she will discover in her calling as a baptized follower of Jesus, the call to be, like Jesus, the sustainer of the weary. So first, we see that there is this task, this part of the job description, which is simply to come to a broken and a weary world and to bring God's hope. But secondly, we discover that it's a difficult task because it's going to take courage and resilience. Now, resilience seems to me to be one of those big buzzwords at the moment. You're going to find it in every uh, school curriculum, every school development plan. We're wanting to build resilience in our children. But of course, we recognize that all of us need resilience in the face of a world that doesn't always work the way we want it to work. In the face of life that doesn't always go the way that we want it to go. And as verse 5 expresses it, the temptation to draw back is huge. The temptation to run from the opposition of a world which doesn't want to be disturbed, which actually at times doesn't even want to be comforted, is huge. Perhaps we live in an age where more than any other age, it's right in front of our faces the cost of standing up for what you think is right. Death threats of those who stand up and simply say, I think this or I think that. The pillaring of those who hold opposition opinions to us. Those who step over a line that we have marked in the sand suddenly become the other. Maybe we see more than any other generation just how difficult it is to be someone of resilience, someone of integrity, somebody of that inner strength. Now, we, of course, we have to be careful not to go down the martyr complex line, that if I'm being opposed, that must mean I'm right. Sometimes you're being opposed because you're wrong, and we have to ex accept that. But there is that call for resilience in the face of a world that won't always support what is right, that need for moral courage if we're to have a life that's shaped not just by the prevailing winds, but by a core integrity. It's interesting, isn't it? When you think about it, that desire that every human being has, or at least let me put it a slightly different way, that absolute core belief that every, every human being has, that there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong, certain things that it is admirable to stand up for in the face of prevailing gales of public indifference or opposition, Every human being has that gut sense that that's, that's correct. We might disagree over what they are, but there is a gut sense that, you know, there are times when you just have to stand up and be counted. We admire those people, don't we? We admire their resilience. We admire their moral courage. But actually, when you think of it, it only makes sense if there is somehow a right 
that stands apart from our world. In other words, if we're able to appeal to a court that is not simply one another. If there is nothing beyond the world that you and I see and touch and taste and feel, then actually might is, by definition, right. The majority are always correct. The people that have power or have the microphone or are in the papers or whatever it is are always right. Whereas actually the Bible says again and again that there is a different court, if you like, that we answer to. And that's what we see in verses 7 to 9. This servant is willing to be beaten, to have his beard tugged to face opposition, not because he's a masochist, not because he's an idiot, but actually because he answers to a higher court, one in which he knows he will be vindicated. Verse 7, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will then bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Let him confront me. Verse 9, it is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he? who will condemn me. That's what we see in Jesus, isn't it? What we see in the events of Easter, as Jesus is arrested on trumped-up charges, as he's brought before the most powerful man in his community, Pilate, who spoke and acted on behalf of the emperor of Rome, the greatest empire of its day, and Jesus in front of him is singularly unafraid. Not because he's stupid, he knows what's coming, not because he's a masochist, he doesn't enjoy what's coming, but because he is confident that it is not before Pilate or even the emperor of Rome that he will one day give an account. He knows that he will be vindicated. He is willing to be judged, to be executed, because he would be vindicated in resurrection, that he would bring life through death. You see, this servant that Isaiah is promising is able to live, to die, to rise again because he knew that his identity was anchored in eternity, not just in a fleeting moment. And of course, that is our prayer for Josephine. I said right at the beginning of this service that when we baptize someone, whether it's a baby or an adult, one of the things we're declaring about them is about their identity. Who are they and where do they belong? And what we declared and celebrated about Josephine is that she is offered the chance to be identified as being a daughter of the Most High King, to be a part of God's big family. Not simply defined by her parents, lovely as they are, or by her big sisters, lovely as they are, or by her family and friends, lovely as you all are, nor even by this church, lovely as we all are, nor defined simply by where she's been born or what school she goes to or how much money is in her bank account when she graduates, actually to be defined by the God who made her, who knows her, and who loves her. That she will find in God who she is and what he says about her. And so this portrait of God's servant that comes out of a recognition of a broken world that needs rescued we may well look at it and go, I could never do that. I'm simply not up to being that person who will stand alongside those who are broken, who will sustain the weary, who will always be there in the midst of the hardest things of life. Maybe I quake at that. Maybe I run at that. Maybe I want to protect me and my family at that. But we find in Jesus the one who does exactly that and empowers us to do the same. And maybe we look at this portrait of a servant who has to stand with a face like flint and to be resilient, to act with moral courage, to stand for what is right in the face of a world that will blow gales against him, who in his case will strip him bare 
will beat him and will execute him. Maybe we look at that job description and go, not me. My knees go weak at the thought. And yet in Jesus, we find the one who, because he loves us, and because he knew who he was, was willing to stand and to stand and to stand and to go through even death for us. And so we're faced with a choice. The choice is there at the end of our passage, and with this we finish, verse 10 and verse 11. It uses the picture language of the darkness and how you find your way, and it gives us a choice to walk by God's light or to create our own light. And what Isaiah offers us is the promise of God's light in dark days, a light that will never go out, a light that will always guide us in the right paths, a light that will bring warmth and life and wisdom and grace for the future. That's why we handed Josephine, well, at least her daddy, a lighted candle. Because it reminds her, it reminds her parents, it reminds all of us that we are offered God's light to walk by, the light of our Savior. But there's a warning here too. It's a warning that feels rather brusque and unpleasant to us. But it's a warning that would have absolutely rung true for the first people that heard it. Because it says, but now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches. In other words, if you decide that you don't want God's light, if you and I decide, you know what, I really don't want to be shown where to go, I'm going to do it my own way. The danger is that we will simply be left in the darkness of our own choosing. That in their case, they will simply be left in the torment of exile in the darkness that they have chosen to remain in. What a disaster. What a heartbreaking place to end up. But what a great challenge for us. And for us as we pray for Josephine. And for us as if we've been baptized, we also work out what it is to be a baptized follower of Jesus. One who knows that our identity is in him. One who knows that Jesus comes alongside us to sustain us when we're weary. To care for us in our brokenness that we have a choice to walk by his light, that we have a choice to find his resilience born in us. We have a choice to bring hope and sustaining love to a world in need. That's our prayer for Josephine. That's our prayer for ourselves as we seek to walk with him. Let's be still as we pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for this job description of a rescuer. Thank you for the realism of your words, seeing the world as it really is in its brokenness and in its weariness. But thank you for the hope that we find in this rescuer, in this, this servant. Thank you for Jesus living and dying and rising for us. Thank you for that identity that we find in him. And our prayer for Josephine, but also our prayer for each one of us, is that in Jesus we will find the one who sustains us so that we're able to sustain others. That in Jesus we will see the one who stood tall in the face of attack and of torture and that we will find resilience to stand for what is right. And that in Jesus we will see the one who lived by your light, and who was himself the light of the world, and that we will be able to live by his light every step of the way.
Amen.